the impudence, the audacity, the unmitigated gall of those knuckleheads of liberty podcasters daring to voice opinions outside the mainstream of accepted thought. Listen, if you dare, it's angry, it's funny, it's even sometimes sad, but it's always based on freedom and justice, as you will see. Here's our host, Jason McPhee. Welcome to the Knuckleheads of Liberty. We're coming at you on September 28th, 2022, staring just a little bit further into the abyss that the Biden administration has us in every every week. It seems just amazing. But we, we actually have some uh, uh, something great to distract us this week. Um, we have John Papala. Uh, he is the CEO of Emergent Order and the host of Dad Saves America. So he's going to be joining us today to talk about that. Let me introduce you to the rest of our panel. In our upper right-hand corner, we have Leon, the word Brathwaite, last word in liberty. He is a retired engineer in the state of California. And unfortunately, our screaming eagle of freedom is going to be uh, off screaming somewhere else for a few weeks, I guess. <laughs> but we hope to have him back uh, soon. Um, and I'm your host, Jason. McPhee. So uh, let's jump right into it. So um, John, uh, tell us a a little bit. Well, before you tell us a little bit about your uh, thing, uh, Leon, could you bring up the the web pages? So uh, let me show. uh, So Dad Saves America. uh, It is a podcast that John is doing, and um, we'll let him talk a little bit about that. For some of you, you may remember him as well. Uh, He is uh, the, the talent behind the uh, Kane's Hayek rap video, Fight of the Century, which I just thought was amazing. And it's a great way to pick up a little bit of insight on economics. So, uh, but right now, uh, what John is focused on is his podcast, Dad Saves America. So we're going to talk about that, this uh, this show. And so, John, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, um, the the your podcast and sort of what the mission of that podcast is? Sure. Well, it's both a podcast and like, as you've got here on the screen, a a YouTube channel, we produce really, I think, high quality videos and, and really the mission of dad saves America is to celebrate fatherhood and healthy masculinity. And to say that in your own life, you have this sphere of control as a man and as a father where you can make the lives of the people around you better and use your freedom to do something good. And and that that is where you can make the most positive impact for the country. And, you know, that in a way should go without saying, but in our culture and our climate today, where boys are basically told that their time is done and the future is female from an early age, from kindergarten, and, you know, men are basically reviled as being toxic and marriage as antiquated um, and, uh, and dads as unnecessary we are trying to put a a positive message out there that also, you know, counteracts these toxic, poisonous messages that are in our culture that, you know, every social scientific study of the health of human beings has found that dad being in the picture and being playing an active role in the life of the family is a central determinant of the success of the kids, both boys and girls. Yes. And the people who have studied this tend to be liberal minded left of center people. And yet they can't help but discover the fact that we all kind of know, which is you need dad. Dad needs to be there. And America leads the world in fatherlessness by an alarming amount. We are 
Um, it's between 30 and 40% of American kids are being raised without a biological step or adoptive father. That is under 9% for the rest of earth. So we think of America as this exceptional country that leads the world in free enterprise and innovation and doorbells in the middle of podcasts. But what, what actually happened, we have like this deep malady in our society. We are sick as a country that this is going on. How is it that Norway is beating us on fatherhood? Yes, that's great. Yeah. Well, hey, and by the way, too, Leon, could you bring up the visual again, real quick? This is something I was saving for uh, a later podcast, but this really gives the statistic of, of kind of what John is sort of getting at. I mean, that we're, we're, this is from the U.S. Census, yeah. and they're talking about the number of children, you know, living with only their moms has doubled in the past fifty years. And there, there's yes. a little bit of a graphic here that they have as well that just shows that change over time, and that's a really disturbing trend. I'm not sure if that completely uh tells the story but it certainly tells part of the story and it's uh it's really disturbing uh so yeah you guys can go back you know, and, uh, yeah. but, but you know johnny you raise um a very good point here about fathers in the home and it's an issue that's near and dear, dear to my heart i i grew up with a father in the home and it, it was was um a very great experience for me personally and I've tried to raise my kids in, in, in the same fashion by being a father in, in the home. But, you know, you talk about you, you, went, you went to Norway to show, to show an example. But, you know, if you look at the inner cities of America, you know, fatherless homes are, are alarmingly high yeah. in the inner cities of America. And look at the condition of the inner cities. So you, you, your point, your very point about, the, about fathers and their, their influence on society we could see them right here in the inner cities of our own country. Well, you know, all you have to do is go to a prison and talk to the men there. It's all men, of course. Yes. Like 98% or something of all incarcerated people are men. Um, and, and ask them to raise their hand if they had their dad in their life. And out, for every 10 enrollees, one might raise their hand saying they had their dad. There you go. Yes. And so it's it's really it's a criminal justice issue. <laughs> it's a system. It's genuinely. An, you know, there's a lot of talk of systemic problems in our society. And a lot of times that's just like this buzzword used to socialize responsibility and to misdirect people for what is yes. going on. But yes. um, frankly, it's, it's, it's hard to understand why America has seen this family collapse to this extent in this particular way, when you look at the planet as a whole. It, it really is, because we're not the only country that has a robust welfare state. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, we can, it def, the welfare state certainly played a role. It incentivized family breakups, especially in the early days. But that isn't the whole picture, because again, I brought up Norway for a reason. They got huge social safety net. Yes. Um, and yet uh, our fatherlessness outpaces Scandinavia, um, you know, among other places. Uh, it's really strange. And I think I, I think it is fu fundamentally a cultural feedback loop that if we don't break, it's going to break us. You know, Jonathan Haidt has talked a lot about how there's this feedback loop with the universities where they've just sort of gotten more and more, I, I guess, into echo chambers. And that maybe some of the yeah. messaging of that is sort of what's feeding back and, and causing that loop. Because he, he talked about how, 
you know, maybe back in the 60s, you might have had sort of a, a diverse split maybe in sociology departments of maybe it might be, you know, two to three or, or, two, or two to one rather right on the left, maybe, um, you know, but now it's literally like one in 20, if that, you know, I mean, it's just actual echo chambers. <laughs> and oh. I mean, maybe this, that's where this messaging is coming through that it's just, you know. Well, in a, in a very real sense, um, Jonathan Haidt's work is, has played a pivotal role in what we're doing because I know I, I know John Haidt, not like best friends, but we've met on many occasions. Uh, we have we have him in one of our videos on one of our first launch videos on the website, and this project actually began life as a feature documentary. I've made I've directed several feature films, and um, I noticed something in my own life, which is my son's peers were suffering and and some are suffering from anxiety and depression in ways that I don't remember seeing with my friends growing up. Right. Um, you know, th th this goes well beyond just, oh, ADHD. This is, you know, social disorders, pathologies. And, um, and then you see what happens on college campuses and you see the vitriol and the infantile temper tantrums that people who are the average age of the people who operate nuclear aircraft carriers. Yes. So, so, and you know, the average age of people on an aircraft carrier is 19. These are nuclear powered war machines. And that's the average age of the, of the men and women operating them. Right. Go to Swarthmore university <laughs> and you've got 19, 20, 21 year olds acting like babies. Sure. Temper yes. tantrums. Yes. Um, because they don't want Charles Murray to come to their campus or, um, or, or anyone or, or, or even Bill Maher for that matter. They, 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 yeah. I can't, I'm going to be triggered. This, this, this transformation of challenging thought into the language of trauma and injury and, and speech is violence. And, and, but silence is also violence. So it's all violence. It's violence. If yeah. you talk, it's violence. If you shut up, it's violence. <laughs> and so it was like, where did this come from? And, and Haidt writes about this with Greg Lukianoff in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And so I started to work on this film project about that. And I realized, like, man, this isn't one film. This needs a constant exploration. And, and his work does have a blind spot. And that blind spot is what has happened to the American dad. So he's got this picture. We have social media, which has all these pathological impacts on our kids. We've got this sort of so-called social justice movement, yes. which tells their kids that the world is broken up into victims and, and victimizers, and they're a victim. And it's kind of good to be a victim. And you get extra points in the chain of intersectional hierarchy if you're a victim. And how yes. many intersections of victimhood can you stack up to be on the top of that chain? And that's terrible. So that's making a bad situation worse. And, uh, and then we've got overprotective parenting and the way in which we don't let our own kids do the things that all of us grew up doing. Right. And yet, like, where did that, like, why, are, why has the American family become so overprotective? Well, maybe it's because the guy, literally the guy, who is, isn't as uncomfortable with his kid climbing a little too high in the tree isn't there. The guy who's willing to say, hey, let him walk to the store. He's going to be yes. fine. Isn't yeah. there. That's a really, you know, that's a really good point you're making, you know. Um, you know, but there's obviously a very perverse incentive 
for fathers to be out of their homes. And I am wondering, where do you think, what, what is the genesis of this? I mean, I always, and I mean, I think I've kind of spoken about this on this show previously, but not, not in the detail at which, of which you are speaking. But I've always thought this, the, this genesis, this breakup of the, of the American home started in, in the 60s with the, with the wealthier state. But maybe it did not. What, what, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I, um, I don't want to claim more expertise to the history than I have. But what, what, what is interesting is that, um, and the name of the report is escaping me, but Patrick Moynihan, who is really, I think, kind of an interesting Oh, yes, two figure. Americas, the two, the two Americas he was uh, speaking about, yes. I, I'm yes. familiar with the report. So yes. he wrote about the breakdown of the African-American family. Yes, yes, he did. And yes. at the time in the 60s, this is really before the the welfare, the Great Society programs really created this strong financial incentive for for poor people, especially African American families, but not exclusively, to basically not attach and marry because you'd get right. less benefits if you married, so you stayed apart. Yes, which is really, it's like unintended consequence that really, how is that not also evil? Who cares what your intention was? I should measure the outcome. Sure. But um, the, the uh, illegitimacy or the, the family breakup rate, the, p the families that were broken homes um, was like 35% for African-American families at the time of the writing of that. Now, we, like, I think it's been broadly talked about that rate is now over 70% for African-Americans, which is an absolute heartbreaking tragedy. Yes, but it has stabilized at a hard, at a high level. But it stabilized. Here's the thing that nobody talks about today: the the rate of fatherlessness and broken homes among white Americans is over thirty five percent. So it is where it was, you know, back when Moynihan was sounding the alarm. You know, I think compassionately for African American families. It is for all families. Everybody yes. is broken now. Yes, and that and that doesn't make it any bigger a crisis, uh, except that physically does because there's a lot more families in that cohort of, you know, white and Hispanics. When you roll it all up together, that's how we end up leading the world in fatherlessness. And I don't know the answer for why. I think it. I think it's um, it's it's a it's a feedback loop for sure. There's the culture. Um, there's the fact that some marriages shouldn't have, shouldn't, should be dissolved, right? So you have the rise of the, the birth control pill and the women's liberation movement that I think largely follows from that technological change. You know, Jordan Peterson has talked a lot about this. And I think correctly that, you know, that is a disruptive technology and a social movement. Yes. And so if you as a woman can go out into the workforce more easily, I mean, there was Rosie the Riveter, right? And I mean, Aunt Jemima was an entrepreneur. It's like, it's not like you couldn't be a woman and build successful businesses or, you know, uh, you know, Grace Hopper, you know, is at the leading of, of uh, Silicon, uh, sil you know, Silicon innovation. It's like, we've got plenty of incredible women in American history who've done unbelievable things in business and sure. in the workforce, but you have this sudden transformation. And so the divorce rate in the seventies goes up really dramatically and it actually has stabilized. Um, 
So I think those things are coming together. So you have the rise of uh, divorce, you have um, no fault divorce, which I think actually starts in California with Ronald Reagan as governor. And so now it's easy to get divorced. Yes. And maybe from a libertarian perspective, that's good. I don't, I don't have an opinion about that either way. I don't know enough about the subject. But it's all part of this transformation, which in a way I think is a challenge for, um, for how to think about a, 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 a rich understanding of liberty. Because, you know, is freedom the only value? And I think most thoughtful people would say, no, of course not. There's other values that matter. I, you know, we bind ourselves to our spouses and it makes us less free along some dimensions. Of course. And it's by choice. Yes. And is it a good thing to make it easy and free to exit that relationship with no cost? Uh, I don't know. Or maybe not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that, that's what happened. And here's that's our experiment. I think. What's interesting is everybody likes to talk about Europe as it's always like kind of to the left of America. But when it comes to these issues, it's not. Mm. It's harder to get an abortion in Europe, in France, for example. It's harder to get divorced. It's, it's harder to do a lot of these things that we are sort of free to do, come what may. Well, you know, John, you know, well, well, I, I guess I, I wanted to jump onto this one point because I heard you uh, – discuss you know some issues of liberty in there as well and one of the things we always like to ask our guests when they're on the show is how they came to discover liberty because this is one of the problems that we have in our our current government schools uh essentially the the, the solution to every problem is taught to be uh you know well you just vote on it you know if you want some kind of social solution <laughs> or you have government figure it out you know don't worry uh you know we have some smart people in control and so it's, it's really hard i mean for me i didn't discover uh a lot of these things until I was in my 30s. And I was just curious what your story was. Uh, so our guests can kind of know how you came to, to understand this. Well, I, I sort of always was more politically conservative minded. I'm not especially rebellious. Uh, I certainly wasn't growing up. I have a great relationship with my dad. And, um, and so I kind of adopted his sort of Italian Catholic conservatism as a kid. Um, a combination of John Stossel and Ron Paul really got me thinking about things in a deeper way. And mm -hmm. that 2007 uh, Republican primary where Ron Paul got on stage and talked about how that 9-11 was partly the result of us being over and over and in, in, you know, over there, as he said, we're over there. So of course they're going to come here. And, and that was such a sort of, shocking thing to hear right and if you hadn't really thought about things or understood things the way he does and so i started reading about um hayek and austrian economics because of because of that exposure from ron paul and actually my, my like young cousin billy at the time who's politically probably as far away from me as as one can be but we love each other nonetheless he um he was like you know what you sound like a libertarian because we were chatting online um, <laughs> And so I started looking more into the philosophy and started and went down the rabbit hole. I mean, I've, um, you know, our, one of our other videos, uh, Mises versus Marx, uh, you know, is a, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Hayek, but I think temperamentally, I think I might personally be a little more like Mises. <laughs> mm. 
Well, certainly the Mises is doing well in the uh, in the Libertarian Party right now. Indeed, <laughs> the, yeah. Indeed. Mises caucus is uh, sort of taken over. Um, yeah. But uh, again, it's funny too that you mentioned Stossel because that was that was my gateway to Friedman, which was then where all the doors then sort of opened up and everything started to make sense. <laughs> so, well, it's yeah. one of these things too. I think um, everybody has a different temperament, and I always liked math. And even though I'm a creative person and a filmmaker and whatnot, I, I, I always like math and logic and argument. Yes. And the argument against government doing much of anything is just really good. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, oh. I don't know how anybody turns on the news and is like, oh, I want these people to do more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who thinks that? I, I know. I know there's a kind of utopianism of no, no, no. These people we have now are corrupt, but if we get, if we just all get engaged and vote and get turnout and get money out of politics, we can get better people in charge and they'll have our interests in mind. And that's a, I think that's about as um, steel man, a position I can offer for that worldview is we just need engagement in order to have, democracy work but you know sometimes democracy is two wolves do two wolves and a sheep deciding who's for dinner <laughs> you know or or a lot of times democracy looks like a group of a group of five people trying to decide or even worse a group of six people trying to decide where they should go to for dinner tonight it's like this isn't really this is why freedom works because well look in a free society I can order what I want for dinner and you can order for you want for dinner. Yeah. And I might hate what you want, but you're yeah. not forcing it on me and vice versa. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yes. You know, it's like, Oh, I don't like that. They're teaching this, you know, obscure law theory, critical race theory in school. Well, if I'm not forced to pay for that nonsense, right. I don't really care. But if you're going to reach into my pocket and take it and then force feed it with, along with compulsory attendance, to yeah. other people's kids, or even worse, my own. Well, now I got something to say about it. And then force feed it, and then force feed it into the into the minds of our kids. I mean, hey, well, yeah. you know, it's in the Communist Manifesto. Put have this <laughs> yeah. kids over the schools. They were onto that from the early age. <laughs> Yes, it, yes. it was funny too. Uh, you mentioned you can't even turn on the TV and say, well, I want these people running it. My gosh, I don't want to go too far down the COVID rabbit hole here because I want to spend time oh. talking about you. But, yeah. um, you know, my gosh, how could people have lived through this, this uh, trampling of our liberties over the last couple of years and say, yeah, I want more of that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No effect. It's like, you know, I was vocal. So, so I'm, my dad's a doctor. My, my, his, both his parents were doctors. I got the Pfizer shot and a booster, mostly because my parents wanted me to get the booster before I visited them. Um, I'm in no way anti-vaccine. I think vaccines are a technological marvel. Um, and when I saw the Israeli studies that came out early in the pandemic about how effective those early ones were against the initial COVID virus, mm. I, I was like, well, this seems like a win-win. This is great. Like, 500,000 people taking this virus, this vaccine and nobody getting sick. Wow. This is amazing. You know, this is capitalism. This is like inventing new problems, solutions to problems. Right. But then they decided, well, we're going to like force everyone to stay in their homes. Yes. And everyone, not just the sick. In fact, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take the sick 
and put them in elder care facilities. Yes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, yeah. Imagine that. Like Imagine we that. couldn't design yeah. stupider decisions <laughs> than what we've done. Oh, I'm yes. going to take sick elderly people and put them in nursing homes. It's like, are you serious? Yeah. What is happening here? <laughs> we're, no, we're no longer living in a represented republic. You know, let me tell... Let me say, let me just tell a quick story here. And I know we're running a short time, but I want to tell a quick story here. You know, on the last Thursday of, of February in 2020, James, who's our producer, myself and Jason, was on a show. And we were talking about the, what, what we should do if someone gets sick, right? Should yeah, we quarantine yeah, yeah. sick people, okay? Yeah. And At not know that a month later, or, so yeah. all of us is going to be quarantined. And we're not even sick. At that time, we were just hearing about this thing coming from China and the idea yes. of, hey, they're, they're, they're quarantining in other countries. Is that going to happen here? Will we quarantine the sick? That's the what sick. we were debating. And right. well, we had no idea. They were just going to quarantine everybody. <laughs> well, and to come back to what we do as parents, it's it, it didn't stop there, right? Because, I mean, I mean, I'm in Texas, so life got back to normal quicker here than in other parts of the country, like poor Leon in California, in the uh, people's Republic of California. Um, you know, Hey, well, you know, at least you've got open air drug markets on every street corner. at the homeless <laughs> So at least you got that. That's a libertarian paradise right there. Um, they shut down the schools, which on one hand is probably good because so much of the public school system deserves to be shut down and completely yes. rethought. But on the other hand, the psychosis that goes into saying we should take, it, it, we learned pretty quickly that the risk to children, especially young children, was basically none. Right. So you're going to take yeah. developing young children who are still trying to figure out what it means to have an emotional life. And they learn that through seeing their parents' faces and the faces of other people. And you're going to cover those kids with masks that yeah. we know don't work. That, oh, the, the so-called experts were telling us don't work and aren't helpful until suddenly they were absolutely essential. Like, nobody serious believes that cloth masks on a four-year-old in, in preschool does anything other than trap snot and bacteria at their face. And yet here we were doing this to millions and millions of kids. And I honestly... The upside is I think it's awakened millions of parents that they need to completely rethink this thing and that the teachers unions and the schools don't have their kids' interest in mind at all. That's right. That's exactly you know, and, right. Yes. And we, we saw this hypocrisy at the Super Bowl in California where literally the politicians who were calling for the mask mandate were not wearing the mask and yet they were forcing little children, two-year-olds, three-year-olds who lived in the, in the same area to wear masks. But, yes. John, we're getting really close to the end of the show. And I was wondering, do you have any... Uh, uh, plans or anything else that you're looking forward to with your dad saves America that you want to let the audience know about and any final thoughts as well? Well, uh, first of all, please go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash dad saves America. Check it out. We've got exciting stuff coming up. We just filmed an episode with Dr. Drew talking about addiction and mental health. That's going to be coming real soon. We've got Leon, great can you pull up the vi visual too real quick here. Thanks. Sorry, sorry about yeah. that. Go ahead. No. And we've got, great stuff about to drop on the channel um, and on People Magazine, actually, featuring this past year's Oscar winner, Troy Kotzer, who won the Best uh, uh, Supporting Actor um, 
Oscar for the movie Coda, his role in the movie Coda. And he told this great story about his relationship with his dad. It's a it's an incredible story of overcoming the mentality of victimhood, even when you face real challenges, not just made up challenges. And so please go check it out at dadsavesamerica.com for the website, youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica. And, um, and we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So if you really love what we're doing, I ask you to head over to the website, become a supporter of what we're doing so that we can you know, get the word out about the heroic role of dad in the American family. Awesome. Well, no, you couldn't have a more timely message right now. Uh, so thanks uh, for joining us, John, on this one. And we'll definitely have you on another uh, podcast that we're going to do shortly uh, to talk about some of these specific topics on kids. But uh, uh, thanks so much for joining us. And until then, uh, for the rest of you out there, uh, stay free until the next indeed, one. Indeed, indeed. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness always and forever.